0: Misery Machine. Oh, hey. I'm Drew And I'm Jurgi. And today we're doing a, another listener requested episode from our new patron, Karen.
1: Yay. Welcome, Karen.
0: Yes. So this is
1: the Ketty Cabin Murders. The Ketty
0: Cabin Murders. Are we killing some cabins? Are no. people getting killed in some cabins?
1: So I really thought that this was some sort of murder at an illustrious retreat out in California. But It's but really it, just a campground. It's just a campground, but that's okay.
0: This is quite interesting. Again, I know we usually do cases with a lot of concrete endings, but lately we've been ending on kind of... A
1: whodunit uh, note?
0: Yeah. Which
1: frustrates Yergi to all friggin' hell because I need resolution in my friggin' OCD brain. So
0: if, <laughs> but... if you're familiar with our Randy Leach episode, this is something that the case was botched by police and the evidence that we're going to be providing or that the police provided may not actually be true. There could be some issues of unreliable narrators here because as we go on, you can see that a lot of things don't add up and theories might make this sound to be a lot bigger than just some small town murders.
1: Yes, take notes, do the string thing on the wall.
0: <laughs> Pepe Sylvia. Yeah, the
1: Pepe Silvia string thing on the wall.
0: So if you're listening on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe. We've just gone over 450 subscribers. Thank you so much to everybody for sticking around. We're almost at 500, so every little bit counts. We really appreciate it. Without further ado,
1: the (laughs) Keddy Cabin Murders.
0: In the fall of 1980, Glenna Susan Sue Sharp, along with her five children, left her home in Connecticut after separating from her husband, James Sharp. She decided to relocate to Northern California, where her brother, Don, was residing at the time. Upon arriving in California, she began renting Cabin 28 at the Keddie Resort in the rural Sierra Nevada community of Keddie. There she resided with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, And two younger sons, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5.
1: So one thing that we should note kind of a little bit about the Keddie Resort, they weren't just going camping or anything like that. The Keddie Resort was a, I can't really say campground, but do you know in Old Orchard some of those resorts that have all those small individual cabins?
0: Yes, I know what you're talking about. So it was
1: something like that, but Keddie was kind of on the downswing, a little bit of a ghost town. So the owner converted the cabins into low-income housing. So that's kind of what they were doing there. She went and moved across the country and was a single mother, was collecting welfare, didn't really have any other benefits because the father wasn't sending child support or anything of of that nature. So she was in this kind of low-income housing on the resort, kind of like how people will rent out the strip hotel or roadside motel rooms for a cheap weekly rate
0: yeah for that's sure. kind of
1: what this was like
0: okay so on April 11th 1981 around 1 30 p.m. Sue and Sheila drove from Keddy to pick up John and his friend Dana Hall Wingate from Gansner Park in Quincy California and brought them back to Keddy, which is about five miles away two hours later which is around 3 30 p.m. John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy where they may have had plans to visit friends Around this time, the two were seen in the city's downtown area. A local woman, Donna Williams, claims to have picked them up in front of a tire store and given them a ride down the road to another friend's home. The two were later seen attending a party in Oakland Camp in Quincy.
1: That same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in an adjacent cabin, while Sue remains at home with Rick, Greg, and the boy's young friend, Justin Smart. Sheila departed cabin twenty eight shortly after eight PM, leaving her mother alone with her younger children. Tina, who had been watching television at the Seabolts, returned home to Cabin twenty eight around nine thirty PM after Sheila arrived at the Seabolts to spend the night. So interesting thing about the Seabolts, the mother Seabolt, I don't really remember what her first name was. I think, you know, we're gonna get to that further down in the notes. But she actually made Tina go home. Why? Because she thought it would be better for Sheila to spend the night when she usually had both girls. It would be nice just for her daughter and Sheila just to have like a girl's night without the younger sister.
0: Interesting. So
1: she, I don't want to say killed Tina, but Tina might still be alive. Had she decided had she did, uh, yeah.
0: Well, it may not have mattered. I mean, well, in this case, probably it would have. But the boys that were hitchhiking, mm-hmm. I think it was... Their mother specifically told them, do not hitchhike. There has been some weird circumstances around this yeah. this neck of the woods recently, and they did it anyway. I don't
1: know. I have a bias against Mrs. Seabolt after watching one of the documentaries I did for research, but I, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I've never
0: heard of this surname before, Seabolt. Yes. What do, what Mrs.
1: Seabolt really like to shame the mother here. <laughs> oh, so, yes. Oh, yeah.
0: boy. So around 7 a.m. in the morning of April 12th, Sheila returned to Cabin 28 and discovered the dead bodies of Sue, John, and Dana in the cabin's living room. All three had been bound with adhesive tape and wire. Tina was absent from the home while the three younger children, Rick, Greg, and Justin, were unharmed in an adjacent bedroom. Okay. Initial reports stated that the three young boys had slept through the entire incident, though this was later contradicted. Upon discovering the scene, Sheila rushed back to the Seabolt's cabin whereupon James Seabolt retrieved Rick, Greg, and Justin through the bedroom window. He later admitted to having briefly entered the cabin through the back door to see if anyone was still alive, potentially contaminating evidence in the process.
1: Yeah, so when Sheila actually came back to report that there are dead people in the cabin, that's what she said, there are dead people in the cabin and she didn't know who they were because they were so badly bludgeoned.
0: Oh, Jesus. She couldn't
1: even make out who they were. So, the murders of Sue, John, and Dana were notably vicious. Two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene, and one of the knives, which was a steak knife, which was later determined to be used in the murder, had been bent in half due to extreme force.
0: Jesus.
1: So, don't get too hung up on that, because I was watching... I did a lot of documentary research on that, just because I just learned better that way. Think about it. You can bend a spoon getting ice cream when it's too cold.
0: Yeah, that's true. Just... I what what is somebody doing with that steak knife I just wonder I like, don't know
1: but that was one thing that was pointed out and I believe the Buzzfeed documentary they're like you know, why, if you
0: stab a bone, it could, it could potentially bend the steak knife like you, in half. You
1: stab ice cream with a spoon and it bends. I
0: guess just the first thing, that makes a lot of sense. The first thing that comes to my mind when somebody says that they found the knife like bent in half, I'm thinking, wow, whoever was using this to stab with was really fucking pissed off. Yeah. Like, that's was, the first thing I you're think. They're really, really
1: pissed off and they were, or stabbing at the chest. Because I believe you're trying to get at the breastplate like that with just a... A steak knife. You're gonna
0: just. Well, we, sh- it we shouldn't be stabbing the sternum anyway. That's that's stupid. Well, but yes, if you stab a bone, you're going. If you're pissed, bone, if you're you're pissed off to...
1: like that, you're just gonna just go flailing.
0: Yeah, for sure, especially if it's a crime of passion, but we're speculating a bit here. This
1: This whole case is a case of speculation, but anyway. Blood
0: splatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders of Sue, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room. So Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down, and gagged with a blue bandana and her own panties, which had been secured with tape. She had been stabbed in the chest, her throat was slashed, and on the side of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun. John's throat was slashed. Dana had multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled. All three had blunt force trauma to their heads caused by a hammer or hammers. Autopsies determined that they died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma. This is ridiculous. This just seems like somebody trying to carry out some snuff fantasy because they all died in three different ways, it looks like.
1: Three different ways. And that's the thing that I just don't buy that nobody in the other room had heard anything because you have three I don't want to say adults because we have some teenagers but you have two teenage boys who are going to be like on the bigger end of things anyway and a mom this is obviously some sort of snuff fantasy kind of overkill crazy thing it didn't just happen quickly
0: no this had to be carried out over a long period of time were the boys drugged or anything like that was anything looked into not not
1: really but we'll get to a little bit of that later okay sheila and the seabolt family with whom sheila had spent the night within the neighboring cabin heard no commotion during the night a couple living nearby were awakened about 1 30 a.m by what sounded like muffled screaming but couldn't say from where tina's jacket shoes and a shoebox containing various tools were missing from the cabin which showed no indication of forced entry. An unidentified fingerprint was found on a handrail at the stairs leading to the cabin's back door. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook. Lights were off and the drapes were closed. So why there was no forced entry was the cabin was set up a little bit weird, You had like a a common area living room. It was kind of like a two bedroom thing, but one bedroom was like kind of off the building. It had its own like entryway, but didn't have access to the bathroom. So you had to leave that one bedroom to come back in to use the bathroom. Okay. So they always left the back door unlocked. So I believe the boys actually had the back room so they could go pee there.
0: Also, I don't know how safe this community is. I haven't done a lot of research on it, but. I don't know about you, but I've stayed at some campgrounds, some places where it's just so safe, people just leave their stuff unlocked.
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up going to campgrounds like that. Yeah. I would you know many many weekends of my childhood were in you know big family campgrounds where you just have your shit out in your picnic tables and your campers unlocked
0: yeah or even if you grew up in a, a rural part of the u.s your your doors people leave their doors unlocked because nobody's doing any funny business and everybody owns guns anyway so who would be stupid enough you know it's just right it could be a situation like that i'm not too sure
1: Suspects interviewed included a man who disappeared from Keddie shortly after the murders and was later found in Oregon. After submitting to a polygraph examination, the suspect was cleared. One of the Sharp's neighbors, Marilyn Smart, who was the mother of Justin, who was sleeping over that night, later claimed that she had found a bloody jacket belonging to Tina in her basement and had turned it into the police, though no official record of this exists. I
0: just feel like if this happened in Maine and I was just like, oh, hey, police, I found this victim's bloody jacket in my basement, I would probably be made suspect number one, arrested, and immediately like... Oh, just
1: wait for it. There's no. just all this fuckery <laughs> with this case in, in this particular family. Okay.
0: So her husband, Martin Smart, also claimed that a claw hammer had inexplicably gone missing from his home. Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas, who presided over the case, later stated that Martin had provided, quote, endless clues in the case that seemed to, quote, throw the suspicion away from him. (laughs) <laughs> My God! In addition to interviewing the smarts, detectives interviewed numerous other locals and neighbors. Several, including members from the Seabolt family, recalled seeing an unknown green van parked at the Sharps cabin around 9 p.m. Others recalled noticing a brown Datsun parked in the Datsun. R- Datsun. A brown,
1: <laughs> like the dog I like. <laughs>
0: like the dog. Well. It's spelled differently, but yes. Parked at the residence that evening, which appeared to have a tire that was going flat.
1: So Justin gave conflicting stories of the evening, including that he had dreamt details of the murder, though he had later claimed to have actually witnessed them. In his latter account of the events, he told under hypnosis... Under hypno,
0: Cops are using hypnotists? So the
1: the sheriff here, Doug Thomas, had went and started taking classes in hypnosis and decided to hypnotize him.
0: This seems illegal. Wait for it. Okay.
1: Okay. So he claimed to have heard the sounds coming from the living room while watching television in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. Investigating these sounds, he saw Sue with two men, one with a mustache and short hair, the other clean shaven with long hair. Both wore glasses. According to Justin, John and Dana then entered the home and began heatedly arguing with the men. A fight ensued, after which Tina entered the room and was taken out of the cabin by the back door. However, under hypnosis, he started talking about watching Love Boat and that Sue was thrown overboard off the boat. Yeah,
0: I remember reading that. And then like when he was told about what he said during hypnosis, he's like, well, I I don't have any memory of that. Mm-hmm. So it's just weird. Based on Justin's descriptions, composite sketches of the two unknown men were produced by forensic artist Harlan Embry. In press releases accompanying the sketches, the suspects were described as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One stood between 5'11 and 6'2. were tall with dark blonde hair and the other between 5'6 and 5'10 with black greased hair. Both wore gold-framed sunglasses.
1: So Marilyn Sharp actually said she immediately, when looking at these composite sketches, saw her husband and his friend, who we'll get to. Oh my god. Yes.
0: Who, who just blurts that out? Oh, this happens to look uh, like my husband. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Rumors regarding the crimes being ritualistic or motivated by drug trafficking were dismissed by the Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas. Plumas or Plumas?
1: Plumas. And Plumas. I have to back up yet again. We're not going to bother cutting this. I'm fucking up last names because there's too many that are similar. So Sharp. Sharp is the family that's getting killed. Smart is the family with this naughty Martin. Continue. Naughty
0: Martin. Naughty Martin. Who? So Doug, Sheriff Doug Thomas stated in the week following the murders that no drug paraphernalia or illegal drugs were found in the home. That doesn't mean Okay. Carla McMullen, a family acquaintance, later told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown quantity of LSD from local drug dealers, though she was unable to provide proof of this Man, the 80s were different. <laughs> About 4,000 man hours were spent working the case, which Thomas described as frustrating. In December 1983, detectives ruled out serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool as potential suspects, as as if they had to entertain that at well, all. They did
1: because they we we've covered these two gentlemen, and they made up all sorts of ridiculous
0: shit. Yeah, well, Lucas said he was in Japan. Like, let's be <laughs> real. <laughs> he here. fucking drove to Japan. Man. I drove to Japan and got a few of yours, is what he literally said to a Japanese so reporter. So the reason
1: they had to entertain all this LSD shit was because the townspeople were really, even though Sue was like a nice person, you had all these fucking busybody in the fucking community here. Like that that's the problem here, that Mrs. Seabolt was a bitch. She was a total bitch and was constantly calling Sue a bad mother. And it was biased because she was a single mother with four children who was on welfare. She did have a job, mind you that. She did have a job, but she was on welfare. She got some sort of stipend from the government as well from the fact that her husband was in the military. But they constantly just called her a bad mother. So there were rumors about drug dealing going on. There were rumors about her being a loose woman running around with all these men.
0: Well, I think in this generation, people like to assume those things of people like, oh, I bet it was drugs. Oh, drugs. There's like this drug scare. Whereas compared to nowadays, people aren't as... Afraid of that going on mm-hmm. or don't think that's going on, you know what I mean? I yeah. seemed like in the 80s and 90s, people were more like, Oh, I bet there's drugs there. Oh, no, drugs, or Oh, this crime, it's being influenced by drugs. I just, it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. In the interview that I saw, she was going on and on about how she would never let her children go over to that cabin.
0: Oh, my God, but you're
1: living in a cabin too.
0: It's different. It's not my cabin, it's her cabin. My goodness. When it was eventually discovered that Tina Sharp was missing, the FBI arrived on the scene. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initially able to discern an apparent motive which made the murders at Ketty Cabin twenty eight seemingly random. Quote The strangest thing is that there's no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is the toughest to solve no shit. recalled Stoy to the Sacramento Bee in nineteen eighty seven
1: allegedly a lot of potential evidence was collected at the scene but because this was pre-dna testing very little helpful information was found at this time this
0: might have been towards the end of when we didn't really have dna testing it was
1: so sheriff thomas called the sacramento department of justice which then sent two special agents from their organized crime unit not homicide.
0: That's very weird. Which
1: struck many as odd. Immediately, the two lead suspects were Justin Smart's father and the Sharps' neighbors, Martin Smart and his house guest, ex-convict John Bo Boudabe, who was known to have connections to organized crime in the area. Both men had been seen in suits and ties, behaving oddly at the bar the night before. I'm just thinking this is them so weird in some sort of pinstriped, double-breasted suit with like a friggin' feathered hat. And
0: organized crime is the Italian mob in this small place in California. <laughs> this seems really weird. Like, take—I ev-
1: don't mean to laugh at a crime case, but this is outrageous.
0: It seems like everybody's taking every crime or criminal stereotype and applying it to this case. Like, it's just so wacky to me.
1: Yeah, this whole thing is just so strange. Uh,
0: oh, this guy, he has connections to the, you know, the ketty mob. You know, those people. What? <laughs>
1: the ketty mob with population 100 or less.
0: Oh, and they were behaving oddly in the bar the night before. They were both wearing some suits and ties. I and- bet that wh- is fucking wh-
1: odd for the bar. Y- yeah, it, it's, it's odd for them
0: just to walk in with that, I'm sure. They probably thought that they were tourists. It's just so Martin Smart later told the police that he had a hammer, which matched the one discovered, and also that his hammer had gone missing shortly before the murders. Later that year, a knife was recovered in a trash can outside the Ketty General store. Authorities also believe this item to be linked to the crimes. Okay, later that year, why would a knife from that be sitting in a trash can for that long? And Do people not take out your trash? And who's
1: going through the trash can from the Keddie General Store? Are we playing Stardew Valley and just like...
0: Yeah, just just opening random trash, trash cans, cans, hoping to find a loaf of bread or some cookies in there or a fish? I just don't understand this. If I were to entertain this to be correct, it would be that somebody was holding on to a murder weapon for a long time and now decides to dispose of it. Okay. If you're going to dispose of the murder weapon, why is that the place you do it? I just think there's way better places and also not do it in the town it was committed in, maybe. And again, like you I said- I stab
1: who, it into the ground.
0: Who, who's stab it into the ground or bury it? Yeah. Just bury it? I'm going to stab until it's six feet deep and then leave it there. So the authorities <laughs> also believe this item- The, the authorities- Believe this item to be linked to the crime. So you find a knife later that year. How later in the year was it? Six months later, and you're like, "Huh? There's a knife here. I think this was used in the crimes." To it's a small
1: town weird cop shit. So anyway, on April twenty second, nineteen eighty four. Three years and 11 days after the murders and Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector discovered a cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in neighboring Butte County. Butt County. It's Butte. But. So, no, I'll, I'll let it go. Okay.
0: This is a distance of roughly 100 miles from <laughs> Keddy.
1: Well, what I was going to say is we're pretty soon going to be covering What's-His-Face Toy Box Killer. Yeah. And I covered that case before with another podcast last summer, and there were constant jokes about the town he lived in, which was called Elephant Butte, but But everything was just elephant butt.
0: I've been to Butt, Montana, and I insist it's called butt.
1: Jesus.
0: (laughs) Because I'm clearly eight, years old. You're so eight shor- years old. So, shortly after announcing discovery of Buttcrack County Sheriff's Office, I received an anonymous call that identified the remains as belonging to Tina, but the call was not documented in the case. Of this is not. ridiculous. A recording of this call was found. So it wasn't documented, but they recorded it? Yeah, they recorded
1: it. It was found way later in 2013 (laughs) by a deputy who was assigned to this cold case.
0: Over 20 years, I'm sorry, 30 years after the murder, then they find it. Oh, it's just this random recording. The remains were confirmed by a forensic pathologist to be those of Tina Sharp in June 1984. Near the remains, detectives also discovered a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket and an empty surgical tape dispenser.
1: Meanwhile... Sheriff Thomas had resigned from the investigation three months in and took a job instead at the Sacramento Department of Justice. His handling of the case in retrospect would have been considered a disaster at best and corrupt at worst. So this is a quote from Sheila Sharp from 2016. This is what she told the CBS Sacramento News. I was told the suspects were told to get out of town. So to me, that means it was a cover up.
0: In 1996, Robert Joseph Silveria Jr. was examined as a potential suspect in the murders. The cabin in which the murders occurred was demolished in 2004.
1: So that completely ruins any potential evidence that's still in there. Yep. Yeah,
0: and well, it had been over 20 years at that point, so I'm sure there's almost no evidence left. In a 2008 documentary on the murders, Marilyn Smart claimed that she suspected her husband Martin and his friend John Bo boobit
1: so we're having issues <laughs> with this last name. Is it Boobade? Is it Boobeed?
0: Uh, well, bo- I'm gonna say Boobaday. We're I,
1: going Boobaday because it just I, I, looks fun
0: and it just it just rolls off the tongue Boobede. easier. He's saying that her husband Martin and Bo here were responsible for the murders of Sue, John, Dana, and Tina. Marilyn claimed that on the evening of the crimes that she had left Martin and Bubaday at a local bar around 11 p.m. And returned home to go to sleep around 2 a.m. On April 12th, she stated she awoke to find the two burning an unknown item in the wood stove. Additionally, she alleged that Martin hated Johnny Sharp with a passion.
1: So do we know why? Here's the thing. Sue came up here alone with the children. How does Martin know Johnny Sharp?
0: Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It
1: doesn't make any sense.
0: And why is she suddenly trying to get her husband convicted? Did they split at this point?
1: Oh, you'll get to that. There's some stuff.
0: Okay, okay. So, however, in the 2008 documentary, Sheriff Doug Thomas said that he had personally interviewed Martin and that Martin had passed a polygraph examination. Not that that means a whole lot to me, but hey, Martin Smart died of cancer in Portland, Oregon in June of 2000. John Boobaday, who allegedly had ties to organized crime in Chicago, died there in 1988. Okay, so did he have ties to organized crime in Chicago, or did he have ties to local organized crime? Because this is said I think both. they iced him. They think they iced they him. They iced him. Because he, he had
1: because things were getting too out of hand in Ketty.
0: They just said he died there in 1988. Well, did he die of natural causes? Did he get in a car accident this this should be explained did you find anything about oh my god
1: so on march 24th 2016 a hammer matching the description of the hammer martin claimed to have lost was discovered in a local pond and taken into evidence by plumas county special investigator mike Gamberg. i always find it interesting with these murder cases where they're like oh a steak knife is gone i lost this hammer i would never know if i lost any of these items
0: I mean, some men really love their tools, but, you know, but even still a hammer, like there's only so many different ways you can make a hammer. So how is this fitting the description? A bunch of hammers could fit that description. So it
1: could be a claw tooth hammer. It could be just like a a regular mallet, a ball
0: peen hammer, ball
1: peen hammer. So it could be a lot of them, but they knew it was a claw hammer because someone hit them with the claw ends.
0: okay. I see you, too, are a person of culture. Yes, I am a person of culture. So
1: Plumas County Sheriff Hagwood, who was 16 years old at the time of the murders and knew the Sharp family personally, said the location it was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would not have been accidentally misplaced. Gamberg also stated at the time six potential suspects were being examined.
0: Yeah, we think that because the hammer was dropped into the middle of the lake that i don't think anyone accidentally just misplaced it. i think
1: they just flung it in there yeah
0: that's probably i just think it's a stupid statement for the
1: hammer tossed it Woo!
0: (laughs) i just think it's a stupid statement for the police to say yeah we don't think this was an accident it really
1: seems like this police department's not very clever they're not men of culture no they're not.
0: Like the person who enjoys sticking the claw and the hammer into somebody's head. I
1: mean, I could understand that. Might go in very smoothly like the spoon into ice cream. I
0: mean, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe. Okay. In a 2016 article published by the Sacramento Bee detailing the discovery of the hammer.
1: <laughs> I like this newspaper name.
0: <laughs> there was an article published that detailed the discovery of the hammer. That just this just sounds overdone, but okay. Overdramatic. Martin had left Ketty and driven to Reno, Nevada. From there, he sent a letter to Marilyn, ruminating on personal struggles in their marriage, which he concluded with quote, I've paid the price of your love and now I've bought it with four people's lives, end quote. In a 2016 interview, Gamberg stated that the letter was overlooked in the initial investigation and was never admitted as evidence. He later criticized the quality of the initial investigation, saying quote, you could take someone just coming out of the academy and they'd have done a better job, end quote. A counselor whom Martin regularly visited would also allege that he admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but claimed quote, I didn't have anything to do with the boys, end quote. He allegedly told the counselor that Tina was killed to prevent her from identifying him, as she quote, witnessed the whole thing, end quote. You know, knowing what I know about mental health counseling ethics, if somebody tells you they've committed a murder, you have to immediately tell the authorities. Yes, (laughs)
1: so I really don't understand this part at all.
0: And that can be a damning evidence. It might not always convict somebody because people falsely attest to crimes all the time, but this should be something that causes the case to be reopened or have more manpower put Mm -hmm. on it.
1: So I'm going to get into this next part because I have a little bit of conflicting information from all the different sources that I've studied to put this together. Okay. So the most widely accepted theory involves a love triangle between Martin, Marilyn and Sue. It was believed that Martin and Sue were having an affair and that Sue was supposedly counseling Marilyn to leave her husband who she had said was abusive to her. So this source here is the only one that I've actually heard where they're saying anything to the fact that there was anything going on between Sue and Martin. A lot of other sources that I found were pushing the theory more that Sue was trying to get Marilyn away from Martin and and he didn't like that. And Martin and Bo went and just took Sue out to get her out of the picture. I will say that the, the marriage counseling they were going to wasn't actually a marriage counselor. They were going to see that fucking weirdo sheriff.
0: Oh, really? He was marriage counseling them. <laughs> this is so illegal. This is yes. so fucking illegal.
1: So. Oh, my God. This is where it just kind of gets strange. When Martin discovered this, that Sue was trying to get Marilyn away from him, because he's abusive and awful, he enlisted Bo, his friend and known mob enforcer who had lived with the Smarts a mere 10 days before the Ketty murders, to take Sue out of the picture. This would account for Marilyn leaving her husband the day of the murder discovery. It would also explain why the Smart Boy and the other Sharp Boys in the adjoining room were spared.
0: Smart and Sharp. This is just sounds almost made up, these surnames. <laughs> It's like I'm reading a story that somebody wrote for their freshman English class.
1: It really does. Or like a bad horror film. There actually is a bad horror film named after this. But yeah. anyway.
0: Additionally, it gives context to Martin's handwritten note that Marilyn gave to the Plumas Sheriff's Department. Some investigators who picked up the case when it reopened in 2013 tie the slayings into an even larger plot. To Gamberg, it's clear that the DOJ and the Thomas-run Sheriff's Department, quote, covered it up is the way it sounds, end quote. He alleges that Bo and Martin fit into a larger drug smuggling scheme which involved the federal government. Martin was a known drug dealer and Bo was connected to Chicago crime syndicates with financial interests in drug distribution. This might explain why the Sacramento DOJ sent two allegedly corrupt organized crime special agents instead of agents from the homicide department. It also provides an explanation as to why the two lead suspects were seemingly given a free pass and were told to leave town by sheriff thomas furthermore it suggests an answer as to why this case was handled so sloppily it remains unsolved and is seemingly not a priority of the sacramento doj in april of 2018 gamberg stated that dna evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect however to this date the case still remains unsolved
1: yeah the piece of tape was found right next to tina's body
0: what the fuck
1: or her remains rather
0: This is so ridiculous.
1: It really is.
0: If a mob enforcer is doing a hit, why were they torturing these people? Why wouldn't you just quickly execute them? But it sounds like these people were tortured for a while and each person had a different type of snuff fantasy carried out on them.
1: It just seems so strange because if it really was due to some affair or non-affair where Sue was trying to break up the marriage due to his abuse, why the overkill?
0: It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make
1: any sense. You know, if it was something like that, why not a quick execution style? Usually mob people have a little bit of ethics where they don't hurt women and children like that.
0: I mean, some, but... Italian
1: mob does. Yeah,
0: but even if they go to that extent, assassinating somebody, it's It's just a shot to the head. Yeah, and you're not going to just leave the bodies there. You're going to try to dispose them in some way, shape, or form. Even I guess this goes to another point. They're doing, say, a high-profile target, but you're hitting somebody who's going to be missed immediately, and their disappearance is going to be hard to explain away.
1: This mob theory just is
0: weird to me. But then it's like, well, why did the Sacramento DOJ just handle this so terribly and to theorize that there was some sort of government involvement with the mob I guess that holds some weight but why would you whack somebody over drug distribution these people obviously had nothing to do with it
1: and why did they take Tina away from the scene of the crime
0: yeah it doesn't make any sense all of this just doesn't add up some of these explanations start to make sense until you scrutinize it across the entire crime itself could it? been a drug thing, okay, well, these people had no connection to it. Unless Martin was involved with it, and he killed them to cover up a crime, but it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. just seems like a lot of people finger pointing and just pulling shit out of thin air. And I
1: don't believe the neighbors wouldn't hear anything substantial enough to call the police, and if they heard anything, why didn't they call? But, you know, people back then just minding their own business. I'm
0: pretty sure in a neighborhood like that, a neighborhood, basically a campground, right
1: basically that's what it is it's just a bunch of small cabins kind of close together if
0: you're hearing blood-curdling screams i'm pretty sure you would call the police especially if it's ongoing i'm sure people are begging for their lives and shit
1: this didn't happen in 10 minutes
0: no, this probably happened over the course of at least an hour, at least or more. an hour, probably more, but it sounds like they were tortured. That sounds like either somebody has some sort of snuff fantasy or this is a crime of passion, like huge fucking vendetta that you would just want to overkill somebody. So just these theories, they don't make sense. If the kill was clean, like believe that shit, but this just doesn't add up.
1: I could buy the fact that maybe there was a small time drug operation Going on that Bo and Martin were involved in, and possibly they may have targeted Sue to be involved in due to the fact that she might have needed the money. It's possible that there could have been some sort of situation with that. I'm just, this is all just me speculating. There could have been a situation where Sue was trying to break up the marriage. He might have felt resentful for that, or might have been holding that information that she might go to the authorities with that if she doesn't let Marilyn leave, and that's when he he took her out of the picture. Again, just speculation. I'm trying to think of all sort of angles for that. I don't normally get into cases like this only because I start getting a lot of anxiety trying to figure out the whodunit. I really, really do. And I understand that there are two very distinct type of true crime fans out there. You've got the armchair detectives that love this shit and love to try to figure it out or are up all night trying to figure out the John Bonet Ramsey case. So then you have the overkill ones, which I think I fall more into just because the sheer ridiculousness and obscenity of it all. Yeah, Not some that... people
0: hear murders, but they want to hear murders that go above and beyond.
1: Yeah, I mean, that really makes me sound like a fucking terrible person.
0: I think maybe it should be framed more as you want to hear about murders that are unorthodox or odd.
1: Odd. Like, I think I like the oddness about things.
0: What would possess somebody to go that far, right. so to speak? I like
1: that psychological aspect of it rather than trying to figure it out because I I get so wound up.
0: I feel like there's something for everyone here because, yeah, you've got some armchair detective work that you could do. But also, here I am trying to figure out the psychology of somebody with Mm -hmm. the facts presented. Right. And it doesn't add up. So I'm starting to think that there's an unreliable narrator here that maybe some of these facts that were released by the sheriff's department aren't actually true. Or maybe
1: Marilyn's involved.
0: I don't know. What we read off that the sheriff's department read could all be false. That's completely possible that in order to cover this up, if they were actually covering this up, that the facts we read are actually true. So take everything you've just heard with a grain of salt. At the end of the day, small police forces fuck up murders. So. And
1: I think that is the takeaway from this. In a lot of the different cases we've been covering recently. Yeah, doing the more small
0: town stuff. Small
1: town cops are just terrible in a lot of ways and really should call in some big guns even though they did and they fucked that up yeah,
0: too. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, we're not sending homicide detectives. That's very weird. I've never once in my entire life heard somebody be like, yeah, we're not sending homicide detectives. What? What? That's <laughs> what the strangest thing. You... So that gives a lot of credit to the theory that there was some sort of government involvement with this. I
1: mean, it's possible. What if one of these guys was an informant?
0: Maybe. Maybe
1: Bo was an informant.
0: I. Yeah, but.
1: That would be a reason why the. But, but,
0: but they, even if you're an informant, they're not going to just let you kill people like that. No, but then they'd
1: have to get involved so that local police wouldn't discover that fact. I mean,
0: informant isn't worth that much. they just cut you loose and just hang you out to dry. An informant isn't that powerful. Usually informants are on the hook with the cops and are being used by cops. They usually don't care if informants die. People become informants because they're trying to avoid life in prison.
1: I mean, that's definitely true, but maybe they were working some larger case where they didn't want to compromise. I don't know. Again, just speculation. That's why I'm not good at this armchair detective stuff. Yeah, I just think it's- Because my mind goes everywhere. I mean, I,
0: I again, I think these theories are kind of a stretch because now you have to entertain in the 80s, there was a strong mob influence corruption in the federal government to affect the FBI. And I'm not saying that wouldn't be a thing here, but to go to this point where they would send federal agents to botch this, I just don't. That seems like a bit of a stretch to me. So I don't know. Y'all want to mull over the facts of this case. And believe me, there's some conflicting stuff you read online. But mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there's quite a bit of information online. There are a lot of different videos you can pull up on YouTube regarding it. There was this five-part docuseries that I started trying to watch. But a lot of it was just accounts from townspeople. Yeah. And a lot of it, they were just really shitting on Sue. So I felt kind of bad about it.
0: I tried watching part of it. And it just felt like it wasn't telling me what was going on with the crime. It felt very much...
1: Like rumor mill. Yeah, it it
0: was red herring. It just felt exploitative, really.
1: Yeah, then you have the BuzzFeed one that's relatively short. They go and visit the actual scene of the crime because the Keddy cabins are still there. This place is still there. They bulldoze 28, but other stuff is still there. You can go. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of stuff that you can find for it if you want to know more and play armchair detective, but that's all we have for today. It was kind of an interesting little, little story here.
0: So one thing I wanted to touch on before we go, I would was looking through basically some articles of the Ketty Cabin murders, which I didn't, again, there's not a ton on, but this one article had a ton of comments and a lot of people who claimed to be locals, and one of them was saying, and I hadn't read this anywhere else, that Martin, in his confession, said they were just trying to kill Sue and that the other three were collateral damage, but there was nothing more stated about that. I don't understand the, the Was this pertain to the theory that Sue was trying to split Martin and Marilyn up? Quite possibly. And they were just going after him. But then why were those other people there?
1: Like, I don't really know what they mean by a confession. Are they talking about a confession to the psychiatrist? Are they talking about some sort of other confession? Are they talking about the note he wrote to Marilyn?
0: They say it was in the 1981 confession, which I'm not sure. (laughs) what Which that was exactly
1: was... one they're referring to Yeah,
0: I mean cuz he didn't confess to the sheriff, no. right? There was no mention of that. There's
1: no formal confession, or he would have been arrested.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean they they would have wanted to a small town police force would have wanted to close this case immediately. So it just makes no sense.
1: It's very strange. Another theory that I just thought of that I found to be awfully strange is there was like a standing theory around the town that Tina possibly was the one that did the murder, and obviously that's not the case, because she didn't just kill and dismember herself. Yeah. That's it, not possible. And it wasn't
0: like she was found dead later from some other circumstances and got karma It was coming to her. It looks like she was killed brutally and taken out of the apartment. Right,
1: so the, the thing about it is it's very... I just found it to be a really stupid theory. She was a young girl, but she looked to be under ten years old. She was, what was it, thirteen, twelve?
0: Something like but she that. She was a lot
1: smaller than that for her age.
0: Yeah, so I'm sure she bound all these people and brutally killed them.
1: Absolutely. And one piece of evidence they had that was supporting this kind of foolish theory was there was the talk of the cardboard box or shoe box that was missing from the cabin. Apparently, it was some sort of diorama that she made that she was quite fixated on, and that was missing from the house. So that supported, supposedly, the theory that she could have had some sort of involvement and then took that with her when she went on the run. I think that's fucking stupid. Yeah,
0: I think that's very thin. And then, obviously, her body was discovered. Right. So, but yeah, for a you know, 12, 13-year-old to do all of this... It makes n- absolutely no Especially sense. Especially
1: with two teenage boys and an adult woman when she's a tiny little thing.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. These were done by strong people. Even men. with a
1: weapon, they could have disarmed her.
0: Yeah, for sure. Which again, we, there was a BB gun. This is, somebody had the side of their head beaten in with the butt of a BB gun. I'm surprised that they were able to recognize that uh, specifically it was a Daisy 880. But if you're coming to kill somebody, why are you packing a BB gun? I, I don't I don't understand that at all. I don't either. The BB this... gun was not recovered, by the way. Yeah, so. this is a strange one. Yeah. So that's all we have. So if you're listening on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe. Again, we're just over 450. We're approaching 500. Every little bit helps. We're halfway to monetization, So that's really good. All of our stuff feels pretty piecemeal together. And our mic stands are basically held together by tape. And these could fall apart any second and often do while we're recording. So
1: but above and beyond that, we eventually want to make this a full time gig.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the long goal, of course. But, you know, short term goals, long term goals. But anyway, if, if you if you support that and support our journey, hitting subscribe goes a long way. So thank you for those that are doing that. Yes, and thank, thank you, you for so those. Much. Thank you for those going a step further and becoming our patron. Thanks for Karen for this episode, and becoming our patron, as well as our other patrons, Holly, Rowan, Eddie, and Marky. We love you guys so much. If you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash themiserymachine, or if you don't like Patreon, you don't respect the platform, I completely get it. We have our PayPal link in the description, it's paypal.me slash themiserymachine. If you donate, leave your contact information, we'll hook you up with some of our goodies, which include bonus episodes, snaps, and postcards, which... You're, you just sent out. Yeah, I just sent out June. So, yes. Yeah, so, if you'll you will be getting July. Yeah, if you get in now, you'll be able to get in before July. So, do that. A final note I don't listen to many podcasts, but I was very sad there was not a Pain Painted Trash episode this week. I
1: know. I really needed something to get through the work week. So, I was I, miserable this week and I wanted to hear my voice.
0: So, I hope y'all are doing okay. I hope you're not getting <laughs> I, there. There's no complications of, as you guys call it. <laughs> corona 19 corvid i can't wait for your next episode so if
1: you're out there we love you We love you casey (laughs) and mark
0: (laughs) all right do you have anything else i do not okay until next time next time i love you we love you Bye. bye Hey, creepy cats, Laura from the Spook Cat podcast here, obsessed with true crime and the spooky and strange, murder, hauntings, and zombies, oh my, then grab a drink and come into my parlor each week as we explore true crime and the paranormal listen on itunes spotify and google play music or on the web at spookedcatpodcast.com join in the conversation on facebook and instagram at spooked cat podcast and on twitter at spooked cat pod catch you next week stay spooky